Let me open in prayer and we'll jump back into the authorship of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for this class this morning that we could be equipped, that we could be brought up, that we could stand strong, that we could be firm in our faith, and that we could stand against the world's attacks. We know that Scripture will defend itself, but we have to be accurately handling it, accurately understanding it. So help us, Lord, to understand your word and how it speaks about itself, how you have taught us this doctrine of Scripture. It doesn't come from man. It comes from you, God. So give us insight this morning as we do theology, as we ask, what does the Bible say about itself? And help us to be good students, good Bereans, for your name's sake. Amen. So there's two authors of Scripture. There's the human writer, and then there's ultimately God. We can't say that the human writers did not write, and it was just sort of God speaking. They wrote down everything. It had nothing to do with them. We looked at those wrong views of inspiration last week. And there are some places in the Bible which we'll look at that God dictated exactly what should be written. Or he spoke and they wrote it down. But the human writers wrote the books of Scripture with God as the ultimate author. So we're looking at this doctrine called inspiration. So within the doctrine of bibliology, we're looking at one of the properties of Scripture. You could say one of the attributes of Scripture called inspiration. That's where we're starting because if you don't understand that God inspired or breathed out literally the Bible, then everything else is just pointless when we're talking about Scripture. You have to understand that it is God's Word. So here was the verse I said last week. We stopped right around this point here. This is a, a verse, also Second, Tim, Second Peter, which we'll get to, also has a verse. But this is, I think, the main one. Because of the wording here, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It goes on to say, so that the man of God may be equipped and for every good work. So 2 Timothy 3.16, what is so important about this verse? Well, let's look at it word by word because it is, I think, the verse. If anybody ever tries to tell you, you know, that's, that's just a man writing a book. That was men who wrote the book, the Bible. No, the Bible says it is God-breathed. So let's start with just the word all. This is like a Steve Lawson sermon, except I'm not preaching, but he takes each word and explains what it means. The word all, Greek, pasa, and it's in a singular, which means all, the whole group of scriptures, one unit of writings. And the sense here is that every single part of that unit is God-breathed. It indicates not only the whole of scripture, but every and each and every part, every word, every article and conjunction. And that's why I really like the NASB or the LSB where they italicize things that were added by the translators. That way you can differentiate between what they put in there to smooth it out for us English readers versus the original word that God inspired. So every scripture, even the ones you don't like, even the ones that are hard to understand, even the ones that convict you, even the ones that the world hates, every scripture. We can't throw some out. We can't be like Thomas Jefferson and cut our Bibles into pieces and save only the good moral teachings of Jesus. Our Marcion, the early church heretic who did the same. We can't throw out the Old Testament like Andy Stanley said and then went on to throw out the New Testament and then throw out pretty much everything else included. Every scripture. This doesn't mean we understand every word. We're seeking to do that as we study. But every part of the Bible, every verse, every line, everything Jesus said and everything Paul said. Today it's common to put Paul against Jesus and say, we don't like Paul, right? But Jesus, we love the red words in our Bibles. As if Jesus painted those words red. No, that's the printer. And that's only very recent that they printed his words in red. And you can still buy Bibles that do not have the red letters. But the apostles or apostles of Christ that he gave his teaching to, and then they wrote it. So every scripture, the scripture, the word scripture is the Greek graphe. We get our English word graph, graphite, different things regarding writing. Graph as the end of many words as well. And so this context, Paul has the Old Testament scriptures in mind. Now he's written his letters. There's been some New Testament books written. But he's just saying, look, the whole Old Testament is God-breathed. Every single part of it. 
But since the New Testament books are also called Scripture and will be added to the Old Testament to complete our Bible, this applies to them as well. So he says all Scripture. What's he got at his time? Mostly the Old Testament and a few of his own letters. By the time the Bible is complete with the book of Revelation, that includes all the Scriptures. So God inspired Paul to write in such a way that would include all of Scripture that would be written even after Paul's letters in his lifetime there would be more parts, more books, we could say, of Scripture. Second Peter 3.15 speaks of Paul's letters. This is Peter writing. He says, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. And now he talks about Paul writing about this topic as well. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, also in all his letters. So Peter is referring to all the letters that are currently circulating from Paul. Speaking in them of these things. So Peter's saying, Paul wrote about the same things I'm writing you. And which are some things hard to understand. I think most of us can agree. Some things in Paul are hard to understand. If you don't agree, then study a little harder in Romans. And like Romans 9 today. Or I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Hebrews has some difficult things to interpret. As well as other parts like 1 Corinthians. And baptism of the dead. And so on and so on. So Peter's just saying, look, my friend Paul... He writes some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. So the Mormons take that little mention of baptism for the dead, which even today there's like 16 different views on that. The Mormons take it and say, you can save the people who've already died by getting baptized for them in their name. That's twisting what Paul said because it's difficult to understand. But here's the point. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. If Paul's letters are considered scripture, then 2 Timothy 3.16 applies to Paul's letters. It's breathed out by God. Peter is saying in this passage that Paul's letters are scriptures. So that's what it means to say the rest. They, they twist the rest of scriptures and included in, in all of scripture is Paul's letters. You have Paul's letters and then the rest, all of which are scriptures. Here's 1 Timothy 5.18 again, Paul. He says, for the scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Without looking at your study Bibles or cross-references, where do these quotes come from? You don't have to be specific. Close. Deuteronomy and Luke. You didn't look at your cross-reference, did you, Haley? Come on now. Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7. For the Scripture says, quote from the Old Testament, quote from the New Testament. For the scripture says, what's scripture? The Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll talk later about canonicity. I'll do a whole class on canonicity, which is how do we know which book should be in the Bible? Did Constantine decide that? What was that book and movie? Da Vinci Code, right? Constantine decided all doctrine in the 300s and decided what would be in the Bible. That's all myth. It sells a lot of books, but it's not the way that people recognize scripture in the church. So we'll come to that, a whole class on canonicity. But right now, we're just talking about the inspiration of Scripture, that God breathed it out through these human authors. And here Paul says, Scripture includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's very few places where the New Testament quotes itself. And this is one of them here. I think it's, it's pretty neat. If you think about Jesus teaching these words in Luke, and then Paul's now quoting Luke. Either he had heard that through Luke who traveled with him, or the Gospel of Luke had already been written at this time. Here's B.B. Warfield. He says in this passage, 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul combines as if it were the most natural thing in the world, the book of Deuteronomy and the Gospel of Luke under the common head of Scripture. So all Scripture, we're talking about the word Scripture here. What is Scripture? Scripture just means writings, or sometimes it's uh, holy writings. Hagios is put in front of it. Hagios meaning holy, the holy Scriptures. So Paul even knew he was writing scripture. It wasn't like he wrote something and then later he found out, oh, I wrote scripture or somebody else figured that out. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. So the church in Corinth is a mess. It's got all these problems. They have prophets speaking out of turn. They have prophets that aren't, they're not quite sure if they're even prophets, if they're speaking the, the word of God. And they need to have interpreters. And he's gone through all of that. Now he starts to end that section here in 1 Corinthians 14. 
And he said, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, if you think your word is better than mine, let him recognize the things which I write, Paul says, are the Lord's commandment. The Lord's commandment. These are from the Lord. Now, there is a place in 1 Corinthians 7, we don't have time to go there, where he talks about the Lord giving a command, and then the Lord didn't say this, but Paul says it. That has to do with marriage. Now, just remember, it has to do with marriage and divorce, by the way. But remember that if Paul writes it, it's scripture. So what does he mean by that? What he's saying is, Jesus has already said that sexual immorality is a reason for divorce. There's a couple of exceptions in the Bible for divorce. Sexual immorality is one of them. Now Paul adds another one that Jesus had not yet said, but he's saying through Paul, and that is abandonment. So he talks about abandonment also being a means or a reason for a Christian to get a divorce. Those are the only two exceptions mentioned in the Bible. Of course, abandonment can be various things. We don't have time to go into that right now. Paul's not meaning that he just injected his own thoughts in, but the rest of 1 Corinthians is scripture. No, he's meaning that Jesus has already said this, so they should know it. And he's adding that second exception, which is still from the Lord. It's just not something Jesus had already said in his earthly ministry. So all of Paul's writings are scripture. Let's look now at all scripture is God breathed. So this is the word for inspiration. If your Bible says all scripture is inspired by God, this is the word in Greek, theopneustos. Theopneustos is a combined word. It's thought that Paul made this up because you can't really find it elsewhere. It comes from other Greek words that are in common use like theos, meaning God, and the verb to breathe. And then you put a suffix on the end showing that it's passive. So the breathing out is done by God. God is breathing out scripture. Or just actively stated, God breathed. And I believe that's how the LSB has it. Yeah, all scriptures, God breathed. That was the way the NIV, see the NIV can get some things right. NIV got God breathed in there. I like that. That's very accurate according to the Greek. Other translations try. The problem with inspired though as we, as modern people, think inspired is just to feel really motivated to do something. That God just really motivated this painter to paint. He was inspired by God to do it. The ancient Greeks spoke of being inspired by the gods to do certain great things. And so we get the wrong idea of inspiration. It's not just us getting motivated and excited about something. It is God actually breathing out something. He breathes out the words. Not literally. God's not a human being. He doesn't literally breathe out on Luke or blow on Matthew. However, in a sense, they come from him is the idea. They, these words come from him. They breathe out in that sense by him. So you'll have to decide if you want a very accurate translation. Of course, I recommend the LSB. Before that, the NASB. These other translations are fine. But when I'm studying, I want the most literal word for word that I can get that still kind of makes sense of the whole passage. Let's look at this word breathe. It's also used in the Old Testament a few places. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So there it's used twice in Hebrew. So the man became a living being. So this creative event comes from what the Bible calls the breath of of God. He gives life. It's also, this word can mean wind, it can mean air, it can mean spirit, but the idea is God brought about man's life. Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their host. If you know the creation story, you can already see a tie-in of the breath of God and the word of God. God's words are his breathing out. God creates by the word, by the breath of his mouth. Here's John Stott, theologian and scholar from the UK, died a few years ago. He said, inspiration is doubtless a convenient term to use, but expiration will convey the meaning of the Greek adjective more accurately. Scripture is not to be thought of as already in existence when subsequently God breathed into it, but as itself brought into existence by the breath or spirit of God. So inspiration doesn't really work because we think of being inspired to do something great. Expiration's kind of weird, I think. So just God breathed is literal and a good translation. It conveys the meaning 
And again, we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration here. Now, does the Bible merely contain the word of God? No, the Bible is the word of God. There were certain neo-Orthodox scholars who said, you know what, the liberals, they've gone too far. The conservatives, you know, they're fundamentalists, so we're going to ignore them. The liberals have gone too far. So in the mid-1900s, there was what was called the New Orthodox. They're kind of conservative, but they said, not going all the way with the conservatives. We're going to say, yes, the word of God is somewhere in here. But there's a lot of other stuff they would say that's not the word of God. Karl Barth was the most famous Neo-Orthodox. This was very popular in the mid-1900s. And they would say, somewhere in there is the word of God. Of course, the question then comes up. Who gets to decide which parts are God's word and which parts are not, right? Does the Pope get to decide that? Does somebody else get to decide that? Does Karl Barth get to decide that? Which he did go on to decide a lot of things he thought. But no, the whole Bible is the word of God. So it comes back to what, what is the Bible? What's in the Bible? That, that will be the topic of canonicity. But the Bible is the word of God. It does not merely contain the word of God. Uh, Lorraine Botner Protestants have held that the Bible does not merely contain the word of God as a pile of chaff contains some wheat, but that the Bible in all its parts is the word of God. Again, you can't just throw out the verses you don't like. That's common today. You know, it says here that that women must submit to their husbands. Modern world doesn't like that. That was cultural, they say. We can ignore that. It says homosexuality is a sin. Well, that was cultural. Paul didn't really mean that. God didn't mean that forever. That's not the word of God. Paul didn't write that. That's the most common way for liberals to attack the Bible today. Paul didn't write that. It was written in the two or three hundreds, they say. Which implies, hey Christian, you don't have confidence in your word because it was written much later. Even though it says right here, by the apostle Paul to the Ephesians and so on. There's a lot of liberal commentaries when you pick them up and they spend 50 pages arguing on whether Paul actually wrote Ephesians. When I preach it, I'm just going to look down and say, the Apostle Paul wrote it because there's his name right at the first few sentences. And we're moving on. Second Peter 1.21, someone mentioned this verse as well. No prophecy. This is talking about words of God. Today we think of prophecy as some vague kind of guessing the future. That's not what it is according to scripture. No prophecy was ever made by the will of man. But men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Prophecy is the word of God. Prophecy here particularly is the Bible that it's speaking of. The prophetic word. The word which was given to the prophet to write down. You could think of all the writers of the Bible as prophets. Moses was called the prophet. We know that the Hebrews thought of the historical books as the former prophets. We are familiar with the latter prophets, Isaiah through the minor prophets. You can consider the apostles as prophets. I think they all had the, the gift of prophecy. They were writing down the words of God. And even the men who went along with them like Luke and Mark. So notice here, it was not made by the will of man. When someone said, well, that, that's just a man's words. That's just Paul. No, it was not ever made by the will of man. It was by men, yes, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So you can see that both the human and divine here, the human part, men spoke. Who, who, who is speaking? Who is writing these books? Men. How did that come about? Well, it was divine. It was God. Not by an act of human will. Well, that means it was divine. Moved by the Holy Spirit, from God they spoke. So clearly they're divine. This is God's word through a man. This is what's called divine superintendence. That God oversaw that man's life and all his thoughts and, and writings in these books of the Bible so that there could be no error and that they would write what he wanted them to write. So 2 Peter 1.21 gives the only description in the process uh, of the process of inspiration. It doesn't really tell us any other details. That's enough for us, in other words, God says. This is enough for us. We don't have any more details than that. You can't go back and interview Paul. What was going through your mind, Paul, whenever uh, you were writing these letters? What was going through your mind, John, when you wrote the gospel and revelation and your letters? We don't know the details. We just know these men wrote and the Bible tells us it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking through them and they were moved by the Spirit of God to do that. Any questions so far? Okay, quiet bunch this morning. 
Augustine, he always gets down to the point. He says, what scripture says, God says. What scripture says, God says. This is not a modern concept of fundamentalist. This goes all the way back to the early church. It goes back to the Bible. But here's Augustine in the late 300s. Whatever scripture says, God says. So if it says it, we need to believe it. And if it commands us to do something, we need to obey it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, that when you received the word of God, what did they receive in Thessalonica? The word of God, which you heard from us. So Paul's preaching and the men who traveled with him, they're teaching, preaching, evangelizing, but it was the word of God. And you accepted it, he says, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. There's a lot of people today who say they speak from God. They will even give you a personal prophecy from God and tell you what to do with your life. And in Paul's day, they were doing that. And they were also writing letters to the churches saying, this is the word of God. Other people were rejecting Paul's preaching and saying, you're not speaking for God. They even rejected Jesus and saying that Jesus was not sent from God. And he said, well, look at all the the miracles that I do. And they still hated him for saying that. So Paul builds up the Thessalonians. You, You receive the word of God, even though... Men spoke it. It was the word of God coming from Paul. So let's apply this. It assures us that we have God's complete revelation. We're going to come to error and inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy is important as well. That means the Bible is without error in its original writings. But we can rest assured that we have God's word. He has given us exactly what we need for salvation and sanctification. He has given us that. We can be assured of that. We don't have to wonder, oh God, if you would just send somebody else to give me a word, if you would just give me some more revelation, then I would obey. Then I would have faith. If you just produced another miracle, God, then I would have faith. Now he's given us the word. And what did Jesus say? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, talking about the Bible, they won't believe someone even if they're risen from the dead. Another miracle, another revelation isn't the problem. The problem is man's sin, and they don't want to believe what God has already given. So it assures us that what we have is God's complete revelation. We must believe and obey the word of God if it is God-breathed, and it is through human authors. So it, it binds us. This is going to get to God's authority, the authority of the word. Do we have to do what the Bible says? Well, if it's God's word and it's speaking to us, Christians, believers, then we do have to do what it says. We don't get to say, oh yeah, we believe it all, God, but doing it, that's not that important. I think James had something to say about that, didn't he? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. His his personal desire was to to write to them, encourage them, but the, the context of the churches at that time and the situation they were in made him write about false teachers. But either way, had he written the original or written that, it's the word of God. We don't know what he would have written otherwise, but we know what we have now is the word of God. Uh, I I guess he could have written some letters, and, and I think some of these guys did like Paul, that we don't have in our Bibles. It doesn't mean there was scripture that was lost. It just means God didn't superintend. He didn't oversee that. The spirit wasn't moving in that. These were personal letters. And yeah, that's a good example though, that how God is using through his providence a man like Jude who wants to write a certain thing but changes his mind and writes something else. And it's still God's word. Y'all ready for the quiz? What were those two verses again that you need to know? Second Timothy 3.16 and the second, number two, Second Peter 1.21. Yes. It's not even close to matching the doctrine of the rest of the Bible. It has historical errors. Jesus never affirmed it. No one else in the Bible ever affirmed any of it. Many reasons. The early church didn't recognize it and so on. So, so divine superintendents. How did God prepare the writings? And this is kind of what we were just talking about with Jude. The writings came out of a specific context, a setting. For example, the Pentateuch was prepared and written by Moses during the exodus to the promised land. It wasn't just zapped from thin air. It didn't just fly in from outer space. This is written by a man in a specific context. 
And we have to think about that when we're interpreting scripture, when we're in Genesis. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, this is, this is Adam writing this account of himself. And you know, this is Moses hearing from God in some way. We don't actually know how he found out about Adam and Eve. Probably, I think, through a direct conversation with God because he was always talking to God. Some think that knowledge was passed down and then he wrote it down. But either way, we know it's God's word. We know it's true. And during the Exodus, why would he write about the creation of all things and the creation of mankind? Why would he tell them about the things that happened before Abraham? Because there's a purpose. He wants them to know who this God is, their God. Yahweh is the creator God of all things. It's not just one of these little local gods, which are demons, but it's a creator God, the creator God. Historical books had a specific context. So First and Second Samuel, which was one book originally, divided into two, two scrolls. So now we call it First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and so on. These were one book originally. They were written for a specific context, a reason, a setting. God superintended that. God, you could say, providentially set up all things so that that book would be written at that time for a specific reason, and then we would have it all the way down until today. So let's think about First and Second Samuel. What's, what's that book about? Kings. It's about a king, right? I need a king. And judges, there's no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, pointing us forward to First, first and Second Samuel, which is about a king. They appoint a king of their own making. Saul, that doesn't work out too well. Then they appoint the king that God has chosen, David. And David is the forerunner of the Messiah. The messianic line comes through David. And so, yeah, that's wonderful theology for all time. But remember, First and Second Samuel was written in a specific context. That's why there's all these battles and back and forth with David and Saul and so on. And so, yes, the context helps us understand it. But remember, God superintended that. He was over all of that, in other words. It wasn't like God said, hey, this surprises me. You know, Saul's not working out. David, David's a better guy. Hey, Samuel, why don't you start a book, you know, and somebody else can finish it or whatever. We don't know who wrote it, but uh, God's just saying, you know, start a book so we can learn from this. No, God, God set all these things up in his decree and his providence and then worked through these men to write books that could then be used for generations to come in Israel and now in the church as well to look back and learn. The prophets were writing in their context before and after the destruction of Jerusalem. Who brought the destruction on Jerusalem? Oh, the Babylonians did. Yeah, but God's real clear in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that it's him doing it through the Babylonians. And then he moves in these prophets like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel or Isaiah before them to talk about what this means. There's a meaning behind the history that God is bringing about. Then you have the writing. So these are the four different breakdowns of the Old Testament, or the, at least the way we think about it. The writings, that would be Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Some of the, some of the Psalms you can classify as wisdom. All the Psalms are writings, but some are wisdom and some are other types of writings. But these are from the context of David, if it's his stuff that he's writing, or, or Solomon writing Proverbs. He's writing for a son that would come up and live according to the fear of Yahweh. Or Ecclesiastes, an old man looking back on his sinful ways and how he tried to stray from God. Or Job writing about, I think Job wrote his book, writing about what was going on in his life and how God is sovereign over all things, even things we don't understand. So there was a, a context that God set up. That's really clear in Job, isn't it? Who brought all these things about in, in Job's life? Well, Satan did it. But what did Satan have to do in the beginning of the book of Job? He had to get permission, right? And God actually comes up with the test to test him, to test Job. So this is God superintending all these events so that Job could go through them. That's for Job's sanctification, but also they got written down. So now that helps our sanctification as we study that book. Here's Joe Beakey and Paul Smalley in their volume one of their systematic theology. God mysteriously governed their thinking of the writers here and the writing process. So that without violating their humanity, the result was the word of God. Exactly what the Holy Spirit intended them to say. Were they writing what they wanted or what God wanted? Both, right? You got to watch for true questions. That's called the either or fallacy. A lot of people will oppose that fallacy in, in theology. It's either A or B. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's neither. Sometimes they've got the wrong categories that they're even posing. Continuing on here with the Gospels. From eyewitness accounts, 
of the life and teachings of Christ. So all these things are happening. And God has raised up a man, Matthew. And, and he's an unbeliever. And he ends up being a tax collector. Is that by accident? No, nothing happens by accident. He comes about to meet Jesus and gets converted. And then turns around and writes on the life of Christ. Now, Acts, historical accounts of the early church. During Paul and Peter's ministry. Written by Luke. So Luke's traveling with these men, or at least he is with Paul. He has to go back and interview people for his Gospel of Luke and for the first part of Acts. But at some point, Luke inserts himself into the story. And he says, we got on this ship and we went here and we went here and we went there and we went there. Before that, he doesn't use the we. So he's living through these times. And he's writing about what happens with Paul's ministry in the early church. God superintended all of that. Not only Paul. Not only Luke, not only Peter's life, but all the things that are happening in the world at that time. The epistles, specifical historical contexts of local churches. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the epistles weren't written to you, right? Anybody ever heard that's a love letter from God to you? I'm the only one who went to bad churches. Okay. Well, it's not completely inaccurate. I mean, there's a sliver of truth, but it can give us the wrong perception. Because the book of Ephesians was first written to the Ephesian church. So it's written to a church in a specific situation. Now, because it's scripture and we're God's people, was it written to us? Does it express the love of God to us? Yes. We can include ourselves with the believers in Ephesus. But originally it was written to the people in Ephesus, which will help us when it comes to interpretation of the book. But if we think, like I did for years as a new believer, that this was God speaking directly to me. I'm skipping over all the stuff in Ephesus and the ancient world. I'm skipping all this contextual stuff. This is God talking to me. Okay, that means, what do I think this means? Right? What do I think this means? Oh no, it's what it, it meant when he wrote it to the church in Ephesus and what they were going through and why he said the things that he said. So historical context, very important. And remember, God superintended all of that. The book of Revelation, John's exiled on Patmos. And he's got, he knows of these issues and Jesus makes them aware of issues in the seven churches in Asia Minor. And there's all this turmoil. There's a persecution coming in the Roman Empire. Domitian's persecuting all these Christians. What's going to happen? Are we going to survive this? What's up with Christianity? God, are you even there kind of idea? And so John writes this as Jesus gives him, of course, the words to write. God providentially prepared the writers as well. Not just the circumstances, but the writers. He prepared each. This comes from biblical doctrine. God providentially prepared each human author to be the precise instrument he needed to be. This person, everything led up to them being able to write this in order to pin the book or books that he wrote. That means their ancestry, where they came from, who they were. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He could trace his ancestry back. He could say, these are my people in Romans. I love them. I want them to be saved. Life experiences. You know, Luke was a physician. Physicians were different back then than they are today. But one thing they had in common, even with today, is they had to observe things. And they had to question people. And they had to find out, you know, what's going on? And how do you feel? And how did this come about? And when did this start? And you read the beginning of Luke. And he says, I went about making an accurate catalog basically an accurate assessment of the things that happened all that christ did all that christ taught luke's interviewing people you get the sense that he interviews mary because he's writing stuff that's not found anywhere else in other gospels you get the sense that he's interviewing people who knew elizabeth he's interviewing people who were there on the scene whenever these things happen in the life of christ that being a physician being trained helped luke write that in a very detailed way the same with Paul and his training to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law really well. So when he talks about the law in Romans and Galatians, we understand what, he, what he's talking about. And he really understands it because he's been there. He's lived it. Previous training that they had. Paul was, was trained under Gamaliel, one of the greatest Hebrew scholars of the time. He, he knew exactly what they believed. You know, today it's, it's common to say Paul didn't really understand Second Temple Judaism. This is the, the guy N.T. Wright. He writes 2,000 page books on this. And uh, Paul and the apostles, they did not really understand the Pharisees and Second Temple Judaism and all that was being taught. 
No, Paul understood it because he was one of them. He was one of them. He knew exactly what they believed. So when he speaks against them in Romans or in Galatians, we can understand better what Paul is saying if we understand that he knew what the Pharisees taught. And we can see that as well in the Gospels, what they taught. Moses, trained by the greatest schools in the world, right? The, the University of Egypt, if you want to call it that. He had all the training at his disposal. The riches of Egypt, not just the wealth, but the knowledge, the wisdom that man could accomplish in their own way at that time. And of course, the Bible says by faith, you know, he he left all of that and followed God. But God used all that training. God didn't say, oh, Moses, now you're saved. Now I've spoken to you from the burning bush and you, you had faith in me. Forget all that stuff. Forget the Egyptian language. Forget all that you knew. And just become a completely different person. Now he took all that Moses had learned and used it for his glory. Just like when you were saved. There were some things you needed to get rid of. Some bad thinking, some sinful habits, some sins. But there's a lot of things in your past that God was developing in you that then gets used later for his glory. That's not neither bad nor good. It's just neutral. Or maybe it was good in a sense of naturally good. Now God's going to use it. Well, that's what happened even more so with these writers We know that God oversaw them and they would write without error. He provided for them. He made sure that they would survive long enough to complete the work that he'd given them. You ever thought about that? You, Christian, God has planned and decreed exactly how long you will live. And it even says the works we do are prepared beforehand by God for his glory. Well, that was the case with them. He made sure that they had provision, that Moses didn't die in the wilderness, that he completed the work that was given him, that Paul wasn't killed early by some accidental fall off of a cliff. Oh, and they stoned him and threw him over the wall and all of those things. This is God's provision. And they were kept from disqualifying sin. How how could Peter, yes, Peter denied the Lord in a moment of panic and he immediately repented when he saw Christ. But imagine if they were known for their life of sin, a life of debauchery. And now they're writing against false teachers that are doing the same. That would never work. And the only reason that they're not doing that is because of God's grace. He kept them from ever falling in that way that would disqualify them. Because after he saved, that's all in the past, right? And so it did make it more difficult in the first few years of his ministry because people didn't want to listen to him. It took them a while to trust him. He had to go away in the desert for a while and be with Jesus. And then finally, through earning their trust, you might say, he did. But it wasn't disqualifying in the sense that God thought it was disqualifying. Like the the man who was converted at the tombs who had all these legion of demons, right? He goes and becomes a preacher back in his hometown. Jesus says, you know, don't follow me. Go back to the, the, the cities, the Decapolis, and preach what has happened to you. So... Even today, when we look at like an elder, for example, there's a difference between the sins committed before he was saved and the sins committed after he was saved. And it's much more concerning if he's lived a life of adultery after he's been saved than before that. But if he said 40 years of faithful marriage, but before that, you know, there was some sin there, that's different because God changed his heart. So same with Paul. Had Paul gone back to any of those sins, right? Killing and stoning Christians, we wouldn't be reading about him today, right? So, yeah, it's the change that happens there. Remember he says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, talking to the Corinthians. Yeah, they're prophesying and speaking in tongues and doing these things that the early church did. But he says, you were, you were sinners. You were liars. You were thieves. You were homosexuals. You were effeminate. He goes through this long list. Such were some of you. Yeah, it, it depends on before and after conversion. And he talks about that, actually. Is it First Timothy? He did it in ignorance. Not making the excuse, but his problem was he did not understand the things about the Lord. His sin, and you could say Satan as well, kept him from seeing the truth about Christ. So in that sense, he was ignorant. Not that he has an excuse. He makes clear in Romans 1, there is nobody without excuse. Let's look at proofs of inspiration. So the Old Testament is called the Word of God many times. And I got into a debate twice with somebody I think this comes out of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, I believe. That they can't say the Bible's the Word of God. And they make this big thing. It's not the Word of God. It's 
the oracles of God. And they go around, round and round with using this phrase, word of God. Well, if God said it, then it's the word of God. I mean, that, it's actually called the word of God many times. But just the fact that God said something in the Bible means it's God's word, right? If Frank says something, then whose words are those? Frank's. It's not somebody else's words. Many times you just hear in the Bible, God said the words of the God of Israel. I mean, the book gives lots of cross-references for these. I'm just surveying this. The words of Yahweh, covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh is used thousands, like 6,000 plus times. Often, it's Yahweh speaking. The words of Yahweh. That sounds like the words of God or the word of God to me. Sometimes that is by direct speech. So I said God did not dictate the whole Bible and that's how they wrote it down. But there are places where God is speaking and later, for example, Moses writes it down if it's from Genesis 1. God speaks everything into creation through the word, the son of God. And so the word is spoken there and everything is created. God spoke to Moses, the Bible tells us. So what Moses then writes, even if it's not in quotes, is coming from God. God spoke to his prophets. He had conversations with them. Sometimes it just tells us God spoke and then the prophets say something. Other times it tells us exactly what is to be said by the prophets. Thus saith the Lord, was the King James, but thus says Yahweh or so says Yahweh. You can translate this many different ways. 400 plus times just in the prophets in the Old Testament. Just in the prophets. So when people say the Bible is not the word of God, it says it's the word of God about a thousand plus times. 400 times just in the prophets. Is that not the word of God? You know, people are just trying to squirm out of obeying or believing God's word, right? Well, if Jesus didn't say anything about gay marriage, then he must have been fine with it. Well, is he God? Is the Bible the word of God? And did Jesus, by the way, not say, and it's in the red letters, that it's between one man and one woman. He created man. He created woman. Right? He talking, talking about divorce. What's the context there? Marriage. So David spoke to the spirit of Yahweh. Let's look at this one. 2 Samuel 23.2. This is a good Old Testament reference here for what we saw in 2 Peter 1. David's about to write a song here at the end of the book of Samuel. And it sounds like these are David's words as he's writing this. But he says before he starts that it's the spirit of Yahweh speaking. So 2 Samuel, kind of the, to cap off near the end of the book here. 23.2 The spirit of Yahweh spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Then he goes to say the God of Israel said the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men as a righteous one, he who rules in the fear of God. So he goes on to say what God said to him. So these are David's last words. That's the subtitle here by the editors in my Bible. David's last words. The last words were what God said to him that he then writes. So direct speech from God. And in these cases, they're writing exactly what God told them to write. That is dictation. Not that the whole Bible and every verse is like that. But in these cases, it is. That alone should cause the unbeliever to say, oh yeah, the word of God is at least in those verses. But we move on. Sometimes God says, write down something. So they're not just recording what he said, but they're being told specifically to write down. So let's look at these numbers. Exodus 34, 27. People say it's not the word of God. Well, then Yahweh said to Moses, write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have cut a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So God tells him, write down these words. Make sure you write exactly as I say. Go back to Exodus 17, 14. And here, God doesn't say exactly what Moses is to write. But he's to write down the history of what's happened to the nation. 17, 14. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it in Joshua's hearing that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
So write down what just happened. Israel defeats Amalek. And then add, make sure you add these words. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That's pretty important if you consider what happens with Saul. How he refuses to do God's command of wiping them out. So God told him what to write. Also Jeremiah 30. This is a great one. Jeremiah 30. People don't like Jeremiah. They say he's the, the weeping prophet. In fact, if, if pastors preach too much on sin and fire and brimstone, it's called the Jeremiad, which the early Americans often did. And people got tired of listening to these Jeremiads. They just are so doom and gloom and judgment. Well, here's Jeremiah. This isn't something he made up, his book. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying... Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will return the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Yahweh says, I will also cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers. They shall possess it. Now these are the words which Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. So write down everything in a book. It becomes the book of Jeremiah. Write down all these things. Because I'm coming to destroy Jerusalem, but I want a record of this for my people when I restore them. And in fact, they're sitting in exile and they're reading the book of Jeremiah. And they understand why God did what he did in Jerusalem. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament quite a bit. The question about the Apocrypha earlier, you won't find any quotes from the Apocrypha. But you do find Jesus and the apostles quoting from the Old Testament a lot, thousands of times. There's a, if you count the allusions, thousands of times. So David, it said it was divinely inspired by the Spirit. So Matthew 22, let's look at Matthew 22:44. It's quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is quoted very often in the New Testament. I think it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 22:44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So this is Jesus saying that David was talking about Jesus. David was talking about the Son of God. But go back to verse 43. Here's how he brings it up. Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? So he's using this argument against these Pharisees. But they revere, they say they revere the Word of God. So he says, well, David wrote something down about me. And it was, he was in the Spirit, meaning this is the Word of God. He was divinely inspired by the Spirit. So don't argue with David because he was divinely inspired. And then he brings out this question. And no one was able to answer him. See, this is a great argument. This goes back to apologetics. And I did a class last fall on it. If you want to look on our website. But why are we trying to come up with all these cute and awesome and intelligent ways to defend the faith? When we just need to do what Spurgeon said. Let the word out like a lion out of its cage. Yes, we have to explain some things and teach and so on. But let's let the Bible do the piercing of the heart as God has intended it. Let's let God's word speak. And that's what Jesus did. He's the son of God. His word alone is good enough. And he still quotes the Bible. You ever thought about that? Why does he need to quote the Bible? Well, they're, they're attacking him. and Yeah, but sometimes he doesn't quote the Bible and he just teaches. Other times he does quote the Bible. So why does he do that? Because it's the word of God. Why does he quote the Bible against Satan? Jesus had the power to bind Satan. You could say, well, he wasn't using it then or whatever. Yeah, but he quotes the Bible. And he knows that by heart. And he, he uses that as the sword of the spirit to rebuke and run off the devil. I'm starting to preach. Matthew 2.15, Hosea prophesied by the Lord. That Hosea stuff, that couldn't be, that couldn't be true, right? All that stuff about find a prostitute, marry one, marriage being a, a picture of God and his people. Hosea quoted in Matthew 2.15 And he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Who spoke it? The prophet spoke it, but it was by the Lord that this would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now look at verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Okay, who spoke it? Jeremiah. But it was spoken through him. Who would be speaking through Jeremiah? Well, the Holy Spirit would be. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. So this now is prophetically pointing forward to the slaughter of these children and the weeping there. Okay, let's do one more here. 
Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. He said, he's praying to God. Your word is truth. He calls God's word truth. What is God's word? The Bible. Your word is truth. Now there it would be the Old Testament because the new had not been written yet. But it's the Bible. It's true. He called out the, he called the Old Testament the scriptures. He said, all the scriptures speak of me. He says, Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets. That's how he says it in, in Luke. Other places, Moses and the prophets. One place is Moses and the prophets and the writings. Then later, he talks about the law. Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17. He's just speaking here about the Old Testament. And it's not going to, to disappear anytime soon, like certain preachers say. We're not getting rid of it. It's still going to be in our Bibles. Even though Christ has come and he's the, the end of the law and he's the fulfillment of the law. He said it will still be with us. 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. He's not, he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. Not just the Mosaic law, but he said the law and the prophets. That's the Bible. The Bible at the time. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill all that it said. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I think in verse 18, the law is just referring back to the law or the prophets, referring to the whole Bible, the Old Testament. He didn't come. Jesus has come now, and he's given us new revelation, revelation that wasn't in the Old Testament. He's made things clear, and he's added some things that we did not know about in the Old Testament. So, he says, the Old Testament, though, is not going anywhere. It's still God's word. It'll still be around until he comes back. Okay, let's stop there because everybody else wants to get into this room as well. So we'll pick up next week and continue with inspiration. I think we'll finish it uh, next Sunday. Maybe get into another topic. We might still be on it for a little bit longer. It's important to understand inspiration. If you don't believe that God breathed out the word through these prophets, if you don't know for certain that it's God's word, you're going to struggle, of course, to obey it. And, and that really calls into question even are you truly having faith in the Lord Jesus if you don't trust that that's his word? Lord, thank you for your word. It is so helpful to us. The Old Testament is not a book that we should set aside. We should not just focus on the new, but the old as well. Paul tells us that it was, it's there for our sanctification. It's there so we can learn lessons. It's there so we can learn about you, God, and it's all part of your story. So help us to know it better. Help us to memorize it. Help us to read it. Help us to meditate on it. Move in our hearts to love your word. We pray this for your glory. Amen.